And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. New VanCast to start the week as we work our way to the end of the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Vancouver Canucks still not involved, and I'm not expecting that they're going to be dropped in here at any point, Tom. So uh, any any playoff talk that we have obviously is not going to involve the Canucks, but this is a Canuck-focused pod, so uh, there is some Canuck news to get to. You've continued to write here through uh, the early stages of the offseason, and we'll get to all of that, but I just want to start with a tip of the cap to all of the people uh, that represented this country over in Latvia and are coming home with a gold medal at the World Hockey Championships. This was a screwy year, obviously. There were a lot of NHL guys that uh, decided not to go uh, for various reasons, but uh, the guys that went, and we all know the story now, slow start, but in the end, really, it's not how you start. It's it's how you finish, and so uh, great end for uh, Canada uh, beating Finland in overtime to win the gold medal at the World Hockey Championship. Yeah, and... I mean, there was a moment there in Latvia, Germany. Latvia, Germany, one of the final games, the round robin, where if Latvia had come back and scored one goal in the third period to tie it and picked up the one point they needed, uh, the, the Canadian team would have been, like, sent away from the elimination round along with Kazakhstan. Like, that's the situation they were facing with, with no fate in their hands – and that was like a week ago, j And then they run the table, Montreal Canadian style, uh, pull off the improbable comeback, led by top pair defenseman Troy Stetcher, <laughs> forming, forming a really nice international ice hockey pair with Owen Power, probable number one overall pick, Mangiapane, destroyer of worlds, <laughs> hero. Uh, Mangiapane's really good. I've, I mean, everyone knows my regard for the Calgary Flames. On true talent, anyway. And Mangiapane is a guy who I think, you know, like, like I think he could be talked about the way a guy like Zach Hyman is now. You know, you remember four or five years ago, if, if someone had told you Zach Hyman's a first-line caliber forward, you would have been like, no, man. Have you seen those hands? No way. No. I feel like Mangiapane is going to be on the same track over the next half decade. I think there's a real shot that he cements himself as one of those, like, complimentary Top line forwards, wins enough battles, retrieves things that if he can find some chemistry with some top players, you know, they can make some uh, beautiful music together. And and he was on a great t- Canadian top line. Adam Henry, Connor Brown, all sort of finding some chemistry together. Uh, really great. I mean, whoever assembled that team, they, they sure did a bang up job. 
<laughs> I believe the fellow's name was uh, Roberto Luongo, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, uh, good for him. Good for him. Familiar sounding name. Mikey DiPietro as well right. never saw action but again I think he suited up for a game I think he did serve as the backup for one of the early games uh, oh so he got a games played indeed yes my favorite my favorite IHF stat yeah and and you're right Roberto Luongo look you talk about Mangiapane and really it was the Canucks that heated him up remember like he started to score again late in the season in those meaningless games against the Canucks and he used those I think as a springboard because he arrived late at the world I'm surprised we're a couple of minutes into this pod you haven't taken the chance to bang the drum for your favorite Ottawa Senator utility forward Nick Paul who scored the golden goal I mean I always knew Nick Paul was clutch (laughs) (laughs) um but he didn't just score the golden goal, right? He intercepted the pass off of a, a face yeah, play. Cool, it was a cool play. Really smart defensive play from a really smart defensive player. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Nick Paul, I, I, I just love players like Nick Paul. I just love players who have size and NHL speed, like they're credible NHL level guys, and they never make mistakes. Like Nick Paul is just a guy who never makes a mistake. Now, He's not going to finish a ton for you. I don't think you've got a 25-goal Nick Paul season in your future. But he's never going to make mistakes. He's going to help maintain possessions. He's going to win a ton of battles. Um, He's the type of player you win with, even though he hasn't had a chance to play that type of role yet uh, in his NHL career since he's been on an Ottawa Senators team that's not very good, J-Pat. But he's very good. Like, he's a very good depth piece um, you know, smart decision to bring him over. He played really well. Great to see. Great to see a guy who's taken a really circuitous route to the NHL, you know, cleared waivers multiple times, uh, sort of begin to establish himself, not just as an everyday player, but now, you know, he's got a big international ice hockey moment. Uh, tremendous. And then, you know, I, I think we should also talk about Lou a little bit because sure. he's now officially on the Iserman fast track, right? Like, Iserman got the VP title in Detroit, um, VP hockey operations, and went about, you know, uh, went about managing a world championship team in his very first season, not too dissimilar from Luongo, right? Although this was Lou's second season, but a similar timeline. And then graduated to the Olympics, where he was the top guy, Lose just part of the the team for 2022, but nonetheless, some some eerie echoes there. Uh, four or five years into his gig in Detroit, Eiserman departed, took the Tampa Bay job. The rest is history. The Lightning are a juggernaut. Um, you know, Julian Breesbois kept that train humming along, but there's no question who charted the route, uh, and it's Steve Eiserman. Uh, Lou's now on this that track. Like Lou's now on that Hockey Canada fast track. Won gold in his first try at the Worlds. Did it in really weird circumstances. You can tell from the picture, um, you know, w- with him holding the trophy that he was pretty damn excited to win one, um, to win in that manner. Um, exchanged texts with him briefly last night just to congratulate him. Um, and, you know, he he was just raving about the incredible feeling from, from winning that gold medal or, yeah, the gold medal and the trophy. So good for him. Uh that's one to watch now. Like, that's really yeah. one to watch. Yeah. You can't understate that accomplishment. Uh, I think Gerard, too. Gerard Gallant, who was the coach of that team, I don't think there was any question that he was going to get an NHL job this summer. Uh, perhaps 
you know, perhaps he's amped up his leverage just a little bit. Um, and we'll sort of see where that one lands. Yeah, and I just want to take a sec, too, to acknowledge Michael Dick, the assistant coach on the team, but the head coach of the Vancouver Giants, so another local connection here. And, look, I don't know what Michael Dick's aspirations are in the hockey world, ultimately, but those same things you just said about Robert Luongo, Gerard Gallant, like, you know, people take notice in the hockey world. The hockey world is a tiny community, ultimately, and if you have success at the highest levels available to you, uh, people take notice. So uh, good for Michael Dick and uh, good for everybody. Again, this was a commitment. Uh, we know what these players went through, the NHLers at the very least. But, you know, you look at the draft eligible guys, OHL, no, OHL season, um, like they had a decision to make. This wasn't just playing a tournament in your own backyard. This was going halfway around the world, uh, international travel, foreign land, all that kind of stuff. And when you got there, uh, it was a bubble, essentially. So this wasn't like a trip to Europe on Hockey Canada's dime where you could get out and do a bunch of sightseeing and, you know, get that whole experience. This was a business trip for these guys. It didn't start out well, but, uh, you know, for the commitment they made, uh, good on them. So uh, salute all the members top to bottom of that Team Canada coming home from Latvia with a gold medal. The other thing, too, is, and like, you know, we saw a little bit of it over time was indefinite three-on-three. They were just going to keep playing three-on-three until somebody won it. And I see a lot of people say this about the NHL, right? Like, screw the shootout, go to 10 minutes of three-on-three. And I've got time for the argument. Um, But I think it's important to remember that, you know, the benches are so shortened in a three-on-three situation. And you're leaning on your best players. And if you're doing this on back-to-back nights or three and four out on the road, travel, all that kind of stuff. Like, it does add up. And so uh, I don't know if practically the National Hockey League could ever go to 10 minutes of three-on-three in regular season games. I'm just not sure that the best players... uh, I just don't think you could ask that much of your best players on a nightly basis if you're tacking on an extra, you know, six, eight, ten minutes of ice time and not just ice time, it's three on three where, you know, you're just, you're pushing it to the limit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not a big fan. I don't want to watch the Montreal Canadiens play keep away in their own end for 10 minutes, j I got no interest in this. But also, the NHL, I think, would be much better served accepting that not all games have to be won and lost than tacking on additional minutes to three on three overtime to get a winner. That's my view of it anyway. Like, I like ties. I like unsatisfying results. I think complication is good. And I like incentivizing winning. Like, I want a go-ahead goal to mean more late in games or or in overtime. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want it to be a a bigger moment than just like, oh, wow, that's the same as a shootout winner three minutes later. (laughs) I hate that stuff. So, yeah, no, I mean... I see what you're saying. I love three-on-three. I'm down to see more of it. I'd love to see like three-on-three summer league. What I really want is like an August tournament where teams send a bunch of young guys or like NHL hopefuls um, and and play like a big three-on-three tournament. I would love to see something like that. Uh, But I don't want to see more three-on-three overtime. I think it's too taxing, especially considering only like nine guys play per team and they're always the best players. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, Dollywell floated the names Kirk Muller and Brad Shaw on Friday uh, after we had last recorded uh, last week. You know, we're, we're here now more than two weeks out since Travis Green got his extension. We were told that a review of all staff and front office was going to take place. Uh, the Sedin's still floating out there uh, somewhere. Um, but what about what about the coaching staff? And, you know, like I'm not here. I went through this myself back in February. I don't want to see heads roll necessarily. But you can't add a Kirk Muller or a Brad Shaw without subtracting, I don't think. I'm not, they're just not going to bring in a, another body. Um, but I do like the idea of mixing up the coaching staff a little bit. I mean, Travis Green's had the same coaching staff for four years. It's produced a playoff appearance once. And, you know, you look at the special teams this year. Power play dropped to 25th. I know Pedersen missed half the season. Penalty killing, the amount that they have spent on guys who's uh, you know, priority is supposed to be penalty killing. And again, it was uh, bottom half of the National Hockey League. So lots of room for improvement there. Uh, and I think, this, you know, to me, if you were bringing in a guy like Kirk Muller, who has NHL head coaching experience on his resume, 1,300 plus games as a player, he's been an assistant for a long time, uh, let go in Montreal along with Claude Julien. Um, you know, if I'm a player on this team and I'm looking at the organization, and I'm thinking like, okay, the GM is still here. The same coach is coming back. Like, you know, how is this group going to get better? I think that would signal something to the players at the very least that, you know, you're bringing in a guy who has coached at the highest level as a head coach. Um, like, I, I'd be down for it. I don't know how you make it work necessarily. And I don't know if it means that uh, Newell Brown or Nolan Baumgartner is out of work, but uh, I'd be okay if the Canucks were to make some sort of shakeup on their coaching staff. You can understand why they'd consider it. And one thing to note, too, because I don't expect heads to roll, right? I do expect at this point some changes to be made behind the bench, but I do not expect anyone to be torpedoed. Not to say that it won't happen, but that's my expectation at this juncture. I tend to think Shaw is a little bit more likely than Muller. All things considered, some good sleuthing by Dollywall, but I think the second name that he floated, Bradshaw, out of Columbus, sort of thrown out. Uh, he was the baby in the bathwater with the Tortorella <laughs> changeover right. yeah. there. I think that one's more likely. And for those that don't know, Bradshaw is a defensive guy. Like, Bradshaw's a guy you bring in to work with your defenseman. And Bradshaw's calling card over the last decade has become working on the defensive side of the game with star young defensemen, Alex Pietrangelo, a young Alex Pietrangelo in St. Louis, Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski in Columbus, um, you know, known as highly detailed, a little bit obsessive. Um, I see where you're, I see where you're going with this. Can drill, can drill his players, you know, pretty, uh, pretty significantly on like details, like resting stick position that a lot of guys, have barely even thought about until you get to the highest rungs of hockey. You know, uh, that's who Bradshaw is. Bradshaw runs a PK, and he runs a defense group. So if you're bringing in Bradshaw, that certainly implies that, you know, you're not going to bring Bradshaw into be eyes in the sky. You're going to bring him into work with your defenders, straight up. 
And this is not a guy who's going to be limited in terms of the options, right? Like this is a guy with a, I mean, both him and Muller are guys with big reputations, uh, guys who would require the organization to spend too. That's another important sort of thing to note, especially mm, yeah. after the last 14 months. Um, so if you're bringing in Shaw, that would imply, you know, that Nolan Baumgartner, I mean, that's Nolan Baumgartner's portfolio. On the other hand, Bomber is Travis's guy. And one thing that I sort of watch for, because I am trying to sort of work through, like, I believe that Shaw is more likely than Mueller. I believe that the Canucks will not torpedo any individual from the coaching staff in the wake of the season. So how do you square that? It certainly makes me wonder if there's other opportunities that maybe are of interest to someone on the coaching staff, perhaps, you know, in the Valley with the Abbotsford AHL club relocating here, right? Like that's sort of, I'm wondering if that's how this all squares together and there's sort of a, a reshuffle or like a shuffle of bodies without necessarily anyone, um, you know, being demoted or, or sort of losing their gig. And so, you know, we'll see how this all shakes out. I was surprised, frankly, that there wasn't an announcement last week on the coaching staff. Um, you know, perhaps perhaps there was just a couple last things to iron out, dot some I's, cross some T's, and we'll, and we'll get it early this week. That wouldn't surprise me, but I don't know that. So, you know, fair warning. But, you know, I, I, think, I think we're getting close to an announcement, and I'm curious to see what it all ends up looking like because – Certainly, if Shaw is coming, and at this juncture, I suspect that's happening, but again, I don't know. Uh, the organization's played this relatively close to the best. In the event that Shaw's coming, I mean, that certainly does pose some questions, uh, some interesting questions about what's next for Nolan Baumgartner, a uh, long-tenured guy in the organization, well-regarded. I, I suspect that he doesn't end up, you know, losing his job, so... You know, that sort of, I'm fascinated to see how these mechanics, how this sort of grinds into gear and places Vancouver's various coaches in different places. I don't know what the Shaw-Travis Green connection is, by the way. I was trying to figure it out I, I'm not sure, Yeah, like in terms of their playing careers, I don't think there is. Like Muller and Green crossed paths on Long Island briefly. Yeah. And Kirk Muller and Doug Jarvis uh, Muller played for Jarvis, and then they coached together in Montreal. So, you know, you can connect a few dots to the Canuck organization there. Brad Shaw, uh, I don't know. Like, I was looking at his playing history, and uh, maybe this is just reputational for the reasons that you mentioned. Well, he played with Ray Ferraro in Hartford. He was on that, like, Hartford Whalers team that's, like, the smartest team of all time. They didn't right, win the, a ton, but they all, but they produced, all coaches are exact. Produced all the coaches, yeah. Yeah, or great or, or unrivaled <laughs> game analysts. Um, and then, and then he coached on Long Island. His, he actually briefly was a head coach. He replaced, was a mid-season replacement. The staff that he worked on included assistant coaches, Dan Bilesma and Jack Capuano. Uh, a lot of, a lot of future <laughs> NHL coaching talent in that group. So, you know, I, I guess there might be some Long Island connections there, but, uh, the other, the other option of course would be in Clark, right? They were on the same staff for a while. Uh, right. Anyway, anyway, the the major thing that I take away from this big picture takeaways from here is that in, in the event that the Canucks add Shaw, I think that has some really interesting takeaways in terms of what the club wants to see from Quinn Hughes. I also think there's some really interesting takeaways in terms of what that means for the overall look of the coaching staff and particularly how Abbotsford fits in. 
And finally, the fact that Muller and Shaw, two really highly regarded and not sort of league minimum assistant coaches, are being floated here, especially after an offseason where Glenn Carnegie and Manny Malhotra were both replaced internally by guys who were already on contracts and Jason King and Chris Higgins. The fact that the club's now looking for some sort of external eyes, uh, having these conversations, going through that process, certainly that's the best indicator we've got. Obviously, in addition to the Ian Clark deal and the Travis Green deal, uh, the Ian Clark one just sort of reported at this point, um, that the taps are back on at Rogers Arena. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, you wrote on Friday a piece comparing the Canucks to the remaining top eight. Mm-hmm. And I say top eight because the top eight is going to be reduced here pretty quickly uh, the way some of these series are going. But you wrote this piece comparing the Canucks to the remaining top eight, trying to figure out how far away they truly are from being a contender. Now, we got a little bit of a mixed bag in the top eight, right? Like, uh, we've been talking about Colorado all season. Colorado was looking right. Colorado has taken a bit of a dip here. Vegas coming on. Uh, incredible game on the weekend on Saturday, that second period between Tampa and Carolina. Like, those are the heavyweights that we generally talk about. But, oh, look, the Montreal Canadiens are one win away from advancing to the final four. You got the Islanders hanging tough with the Boston Bruins. So what did your research tell you about how far the Canucks are in terms of roster composition from being one of these final eight teams. Well, on the one hand, not as far as you'd think based on their spot in the standings, right? I mean, there are good bones to this team, including a 1C, a 2C, you know, a one defenseman and a goaltender that are all roughly up to par with what the average final eight team is getting from their goalie, you know, one one of their top pair defensemen, their second line center and their first line center. I mean, that's... That's a good building sort of, that's a good place to start from in, in sort of building out, especially considering all of those players are 26 or younger, right? I mean, that's sort of the challenge here is how do you take that group and support them 
as effectively as they need to be supported in order to take that step. But I would add a couple other notes. One is that your average Final Eight team has another elite level forward. Now, we used Dom LeCision's game score value added metric, the GSVA metric that he sort of uses as an input in his predictive model, right? His model that beats the betting markets year over year. And GSVA does not rate JT Miller or Brock Besser as elite pieces, right? I mean, regardless of how they're thought of in Vancouver, the model rates or projects Besser next season to be a credible top-line quality player and projects JT Miller to be a, you know, quality second-line forward. I don't think that's unfair, right, based on Miller's priors. Uh, but there's obviously a chance that those guys could level up. Now, GSVA is also high on Vasily Podkolzin and is relatively lower than I'd have thought on Niels Hoaglander. Projects them both as like low-end second-line contributors, but obviously one of those guys could potentially in the next three, four years take the leap and become a top-line caliber forward or maybe even an elite one, right? So nonetheless, the takeaway there for me was the Canucks have Pedersen. He's an elite piece. But at the moment, anyway, it doesn't look like they have Pedersen's retina, right? It doesn't look like they have Pedersen's Dreisaitl or his Marner or his Marchand. Right? Like that second elite piece on the line. So Right now, anyway, GSVA would suggest that the Canucks are lacking that piece. So for as much as we talk about Vancouver needing depth, it's hard to escape the takeaway that actually they also need some reinforcements at the very top of their lineup. The other spot that that's true was the right side of the defense, right? Another right-handed top pair defenseman. Not exactly an easy thing to find, JPAT, but that's what GSVA suggests the Canucks need, right? Like, in addition to another top six winger, a third line center, a fourth line forward, right? Uh, another top four quality defender who can play on your third pair. Like, in addition to those sort of pieces that we're more used to discussing, the GSVA model suggests that the Canucks also need to keep adding to their core group, that they're, in fact, a couple core pieces away from taking that step. So, like, I, I hear all that and, and I kind of laugh because, you know, we've all been screaming and beating this drama about the Canucks need more depth. Canucks need more depth than they do. The easiest way for them to get more depth is to get more really good players that come in above the depth guys and push Hoaglander and Pod Colson into the slots that they probably should be in, right? And, and Tanner totally. Pearson and those types of guys. But, of course, that is even more difficult than just going out into the open market and finding the depth guys that everybody seems to think that they need. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and even finding those depth guys is going to be really difficult this offseason with the cap space that they've got. And this, for me, is like reason number one why you have to make the ninth overall selection. Like, don't overthink this one. Don't trade it for win-now help. You know, in <laughs> just make the pick because... Fundamentally, what the Canucks need is as many shots as they can find, as many Pod Colsons, as many Hoaglanders, right? As many Jack Rathbones, like as many guys with a chance to level up, right? And hit that elite level contributor that the Canucks need as they can possibly get their hands on. Like that's what they need. They need more of that. And whether it's uh, Mason McTavish or Kent Johnson or maybe one of the big four defensemen fall and you end up with Edvinson or Clark or Hughes, probably not, but maybe. Like, keep that ninth overall pick. Keep that pick because there's no way, there's no way to reliably get 
elite level contributors in their prime unless you're drafting and developing them yourself. Like we know this, we know this. And the Canucks still need more of that in addition to more of the workman-like sort of guys who can at least hold the fort uh, lower down their lineup. You went into full research mode over the weekend here, or maybe even before the weekend. Uh, pieces up now at the Athletic that, you know, we talk about the value of that ninth overall pick, and we heard Jim Benning in the aftermath of the draft lotto talking about making phone calls and needing a really good player if they were going to move off that pick. Uh, you've done some exhaustive research here in a piece that's posted about the value of, is it top 15 picks? Is that where the cutoff was in yeah. the salary cap era? Yep, put it sort of top half of the first round over the last 15 years. Uh, identified 30 times that those trades have been dealt and then sort of categorized them into five scenarios that could, you know, provide some something instructive in terms of what the Canucks can expect in the event that they do monetize this pick on the market. Um, some key takeaways here is like, the trading down option, you know, Jim Benning's never traded down from a top 100 pick. In three consecutive years, between 17 and 19, though, he did trade down at one point, uh, whether it was from the fourth or the sixth round, uh, respectively, in, in various sort of scenarios. They, they got some good players out, out of doing that. I mean, Jack Malone, for example, is like a freebie pick that they got from trading down. He didn't have a great USHL season, but there could be something there. Arvid Kosmar is another one, right? I mean, that's yep. uh, that's a prospect. Prob probably one of Vancouver's top 10 prospects. Fringes of the top five has a chance to sort of uh, rise here with another strong, um, you know, uh, SHL season. Carl Plaschik's another guy that they got to trade down. So, you know, they're not reluctant to trade down historically, but they certainly have never traded down from the top of the draft. And you know what? No one, ha no one has really. I mean, these, this, we've only seen eleven trade downs involving top fifteen picks over the past uh, fifteen years. Uh, you know, typically you get a second round pick for it, but I, I mean, history suggests anyway that for the most part, teams would be much better off just not overthinking it. Select that BPA. And move on with your life. You know, there's so many examples where it's like the LA Kings, you know, get uh, a, a second round pick and a first round pick for trading down one spot at the NHL entry draft. And then they trade that third round pick for two picks. And then they select a player, an NHL player, a guy with a long career with the, with the first of those picks that they traded down for. And then it's like, you look at the final assessment, and it's like, instead of Tyler Myers, the Los Angeles Kings drafted Colton Tubert, drafted Nicholas Delorier, and traded their additional third-round pick for 16 games and zero playoff points of Jeff Halpern. You know, and it's like, yeah. the, the fact is, is that if you're trading down at the draft and getting additional assets, you have to be so disciplined about managing your assets across the board, or it's going to look a little silly and, and once, once it comes out in the wash. Far too many times you've got teams that are like, Traded down from 15th to 18th and got a second round pick for my trouble or a third round pick for my trouble. And it's like, I got Taylor Beck with my third round pick. Like, <laughs> he's an NHL player. He played 200 games. Like, that's a good, that you know, tidy bit of business. It's like, you traded out of the Eric Carlson pick to draft Chet Picard. Like, what do you, what do you, <laughs> and I, I, I think, honestly, more a guideline than a hard and fast rule because all situations are distinct and, and, deserve to be considered as such, but as a general rule of thumb, trading down out of the top 15, I wouldn't do it. I, I would lean against doing it more often than not. I think the talent is too good at the top of the draft 
take the best player available, um, and then, you know, went into trade scenarios. And I think one really interesting part is uh, of this piece, one or two really interesting takeaways. One is when you look over the trades that Vegas made in netting top 15 picks in 2017, so this is the expansion considerations section of the piece, you know, they netted firsts for taking on bad money, but that money, David Clarkson and Mikhail Grabowski in particular, that was LTI money. Like they were essentially taking on, you know, like the annoyance of managing an LTI deal and the cash mm-hmm. before insurance or if they were uninsured deals. And they were getting firsts and seconds for doing that. So when people sort of think about like, oh, do you think do you think a second would be enough to get Vegas or Seattle to take Braden Holpe? It's like, I don't think a second would be enough to convince Seattle to take Michael Furland. Right? Like the the market would suggest that it's like probably a first plus just to get Seattle to take Furland's deal. I just don't think I don't see any way that that makes sense for the Canucks to do. Like I don't see how they have enough in the pipeline to warrant trading futures to get off of money this year. And and even if you do get off money, you still have so much bad money that like it only helps you so much. You know, like it I just think your best your best that is to take your medicine overall this season for the Canucks. I've, I've been insistent on this point over the past few weeks just because the more I look at it, the clearer it seems to me. But uh, but this piece sort of further uh, cemented that in my mind. And the last thing is one-for-one trades. Good young player for top 15 draft pick. Those don't happen, right? Like Corey Schneider for Bo Horvat, basically the only example of the last 15 years. Otherwise, that, honestly, Tom, as I read through that, that was what blew me away. And I, I hadn't really given it a whole lot of thought prior to that. But that's the example. Like, almost all first-round picks are dealt as part of a package and a grander trade. Like, a straight-up ninth round or ninth overall for an established player. Like, that's the example in the salary it. cap era. It's the only one. Like, these yeah. trades don't happen. So, you know... Typically speaking, I think you gotta you gotta be sort of looking at bundling the first round pick with either a decent young player, right? Like maybe it's a first round pick and Ole Olevi. Can that get you something you're interested in? Or maybe it's a first round pick and Nate Schmidt. Can that get you a bigger piece that you're interested in? Maybe. But I mean, those are the sorts of scenarios you're looking at if you're looking at trading number nine. Um, I think the return would have to be massive. Like I just think it would have to be massive. I, I just don't see any way that the Canucks are sustainably built along, built well enough in terms of where they're at in this rebuild to really lose that number nine pick unless the guy you're getting, you know, truly is that elite forward or that top pair right-handed defenseman that we're talking about the club needing long-term to take that step. Like, you have to really be getting a rare piece because the talent that's likely to be available at nine overall you know, whether it's Johnson, whether it's McTavish, someone in that ilk, like, man, those are really good pieces. Well, we mentioned the Canucks in Jersey and that uh, Corey Schneider, the pick became Bo Horvat, obviously. Uh, we should mention Megan Duggan, who is a U.S. Olympian, but she's now the New Jersey Devils Manager of Player Development. She's going to be Craig Custance and Sean Gentile's awesome. guest on the Athletic Hockey Show on Tuesday. So, uh, again, it's great to see uh, opportunities arise uh, for someone like Megan Duggan with her hockey resume and now getting a chance to to bring her experience to the National Hockey League as the Devils Manager of Player Development. So you might want to check that out on the Tuesday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show, which is now a five-day-a-week enterprise. We've added the Prospect Series with Max Boltman and Corey Pronman. That goes every Friday here at the Athletic 
and certainly worth uh, listening to as we work our way to the draft coming up on the 23rd and 24th of July. I've, I think that's it for today. Anything else that uh, you wanted to jump on? We sh- Again, the piece that we just referenced there is posted now at The Athletic, so people can check that out, the value of a ninth overall draft pick. That's that's it for me, man. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see this week. I do think at some point we've got to get the coaching staff announcement and some clarity on exactly where everyone fits into that. Uh, the Sedin twin thing, I, I wouldn't be shocked if that drags on another week beyond this one. Uh, we'll sort of see, but obviously things are beginning to happen. And, and the biggest takeaway for me by far is that the Canucks are open for business and, and look like they're back to doing business like a have NHL team again. Uh, that matters. That matters a ton because they, you know, have put themselves in a bit of a hole with the way they conducted business over the course of the pandemic. And it's going to require some ingenuity uh, and perhaps some spending to get out of it. Well, we say this at the end of every episode. Check out our comment section for each podcast that we drop at the Athletic app. Or rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. And if you're not already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 a month. That's going to do it for this, the first of three episodes of the VanCast this week. So we'll be back later in the week. We'll be charting whatever developments come your way from the Vancouver Canucks for Dransford's J-Pad. As always, thanks so much for your support and for listening to another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and theathletic.com.